Morning, everyone. So broadly, we're just going to sort of skim through some of the arguments that we uh, set out in the book that we wrote that related to some research we did on three Norfolk housing estates based in Norwich two or three years ago now. And we're going to link that into sort of like those wider debates. So we've got how is the white working class featured in media and policy debates? What's the evidence regarding the impact of migration on white working class communities? And I think, as far as we're concerned, are there more helpful ways of framing the existing debates? So broadly, as I think we're possibly all aware, there have been two kind of separate stands, strands of public discourse relating to the white working class in recent years, what we might call the chair phenomenon, and what I, for want of any think better, if someone can come up with a better phrase, I've called the beleaguered native. So the Chav phenomenon, this is the characterisation, indeed caricaturing, and writing off of sections of Britain's population, often white, often living on council estates, and nearly always poor. The term is strongly derogatory and has connotations of antisocial behaviour, limited social capital, and social aspirations. Widely used in everyday conversation and in the media, the use of Chav produces an image of a white working class that's socially desirable and culturally inept. It's also racialised producing an idea of a white working class people, especially poor people among them, almost as an inferior race, which is a quite a long historical tradition that's something I'm quite interested in as a historian. And it plays into understandings of poverty as caused by individual behaviour rather than structural inequalities. And it's been a sort of a shift in sort of policy um, ideas around poverty, I think, certainly over the last 20, 30 years. And then this has then re-emerged, I think, since the 2010 general election in discussions of the deserving and undeserving recipients of welfare benefits and single parents with too many children and all those stereotypes. And then so often the chav is set up as almost sort of too white, kind of feelings failing to keep up with sort of postmodern Britain, implicitly in opposition to culturally sophisticated, multi multiculturally savvy middle classes. And then at the same time, we have the beleaguered native, which kind of encapsulates the representation of an indigenous English white working class by well-off journalists, politicians, some academics, as well as people on the street, as a tribe in danger of ex extinction, one which needs protecting from this new diversity. And the idea of the beleaguered native can be found right across the political spectrum. So one quite prominent example came in the comments of Margaret Hodge, MP for Barking, when in 2006 she caused an uproar when she commented that eight out of ten white working class voters in her constituency may be tempted to vote BNP because no one else is listening to their concerns over unemployment, high house prices, and the housing of asylum seekers in the area. They can't get a home for their children, they see black and ethnic minority communities moving in, and they are angry. Later retracted, the statement reflects a beleaguered native discourse in which immigration is mixed up with issues of race, faith and ethnicity. Indeed, the publicity for the BBC's uh, 2008 TV series White Season itself promoted a similar notion, referring to the complex mix of feelings that lead some white working class people to say they feel under siege. And faith has become an increasingly prominent in these representations, has been manifested in the growing anti-Islamic activism of the English Defence League and their supporters in the upper echelons of society, such as those who recently invited the Dutch politician Geert Wilders to the House of Lords. But what's the actual evidence regarding the impact of migration on white working class communities? There is in fact <coughs> an increasing amount over time. So that House of Lords Select Committee report found that in the long run the main economic cost of immigration is to enlarge the economy with relatively small costs and benefits for the incomes. And specific sectors of the economy, as I'm sure we're all aware, rely heavily on migrant labour. So recent research has pointed to the example of 
research chair of our, of our study of um, post-2004 migrants supporting the rural economy in particular, including agriculture, food processing, <coughs> care work and hospitality. And this is a reflection of that there's a new geography to post-2004 migration as new migrants have become a significant presence in areas which hitherto have not seen much international immigration. So as well as London remaining an important destination, areas such as the east of England and the M4 corridor <coughs> towns have become important. And I've just popped in a couple of... Um, I did some work with Polish migrants doing some oral histories uh, year before last now. So this is Sharak, who's remembering his time... I actually interviewed him in Krakow, uh, so he's remembering his time working. He was based in London, but often lived and worked around the city. The bits in italics is where he uh, was speaking in English. For him, it was a big, a big part of his life and his experience, but he wasn't just in London. He's moving out, like a lot of migra migrants are, Peterborough, places like Watford, Guildford. And, but I think, you know, crucially, there is, there is an acknowledged knowledge gap, which hopefully people in this room, other researchers, can, can help to fill over time, around um, issues such as short-term immigration to the UK, the distribution of migrants in local, regional and national levels, and also the issue around illegal mi migration. And evidence points to ongoing dis discrimination in the labour market against migrants. For example... Almost all the immigrant groups outrank the UK-born in terms of length of time and education, but few groups seem to be able to translate this into positive labour market outcomes. Here is a, here, this is Magda, who I interviewed in London. She was three years into a law degree in Poland when she came to the UK to pick up holiday work in 2003, so just before Poland joined the EU. And, and she's remained since then. And as you can see here, I'm not going to read this out, I'm assuming you're all able to read this yourself. And as you can see here, she began her life as an illegal immigrant, and it sort of has set her into the sort of vicious circle that she feels that she can't now escape from. So although she can work legally, the people she knows, the skills that she's now got, have made her stay within the, the circle of illegal Im immigrants, and that's still the kind of work that she's picking up, although she just recently got a job at Starbucks as one of their managers, but is feeling frustrated. She's from a middle-class family at home, but as she says down here, I'm stuck in a place where if I go to Poland, it's not going to be okay, because all my friends, they've moved on now. They normally have families and good, good jobs. She's, she's embarrassed to go home. She feels stuck in, in London, with it, you know, in the coffee shop culture. And so... As, as a result of her coming in as an illegal immigrant. So these are just some examples of some of the ways that, as, as researchers, we perhaps need to look at the complexities that are around immigration rather than seeing it as very simple polls come over in 2004. Actually, uh, things are much more complex than that. And so overall, the impact of migration varies enormously depending on a range of factors, including timescale, definition of migrant as we can see here and the locality and region if we move on to the specifics now wages is often something that's always brought up how immigrants bring down wages actually the detailed research suggests both um, with de detailed research that's based both on the EU and, and, and the UK shows that they're either insignificantly different from zero or slightly positive. However, clearly, as in the second point, that there is a small negative impact on wages in areas of high in-migration, in, in, in semi- and unskilled occupations, but overall, actually not the kind of tabloid headline levels of impact that we're led to believe. 
And of course, what we need to remember th is this, as Magda's case illustrated, where she's been paid £3 an hour, the main force of low wages is felt by migrants themselves. So that, for example, the House of Lords Select Committee report called for governments to adequately enforce minimum wage legislation. And as we can see from this graph here of unemployment, the people who have been most impacted by unemployment since 2004 are non-white groups, both UK-born and migrant groups. There has been, as you can see from quarter one in um, 2008, a slight increase in the unemployment levels of white UK-born compared to white foreign-born, but essentially it's still far, far lower than people who are identified as non-white. And if we move on now to the even more contentious issue of benefits, a European-wide study from uh, 2006 found that generosity in levels of state welfare is a factor in immigrants' decision-making, but not as much as wage levels. Wage levels' effects on the location choice of immigrants where people are free to choose are ten times that of benefit impact. Barrett and McCarthy's 2008 study using the British Household Panel Survey found that immigrants were only 4% more likely than natives, quote, to receive social welfare benefits. And clearly within that, within the migrant population, there is differences which need to be further unpicked. And I think IPPR has done some quite interesting work on that. And so, for example, this, the 2010 study of the AH migrants have found that they were 59% less likely than natives to receive state benefits and tax credits. And then obviously, when, even when that's adjusted for the demographic, they're still 13% less likely to receive benefits. And as Margaret Hodges' comments reveal, another further key issue of conflict is that of housing. Though they're coming here and stealing our houses. And what we need to remember here, crucially, is the material context in which this housing debate is taken. Since the 1980s, there's been a massive reduction in social housing stock, especially local authority housing, caused by existing tenants exercising their right to buy, as well as reduction in the numbers of new built social housing. And these two things have occurred at a time when there's an increase in the number of households in the UK, caused by greater long longevity, marital breakdown, and then to a lesser extent by immigration. So here, essentially, this is, I don't know whether you can see this, this is UK-born heads of household, foreign-born people who've arrived in the past five years. The purple is owner-occupiers, green is private tenants. This is social housing, 17% here, 11% here. And so essentially, new, new migrants to the UK over the last five years make up less than 2% of those in social housing. So 90% of those who live in social housing are UK and born. Dustman and Al's study of AH migrants found that 57% AH migrants are 57% less likely to live in social housing than natives. And if this is adjusted to reflect the same demographic, they're still 29% less likely. And we, of course, we need to remember the increasingly high proportion of migrants among the homeless. Crucially, Rutter and Latour's 2009 study found that the sale of social housing and its subsequent use as private rented accommodation for migrants has fueled misconceptions over the allocation of social housing. Local residents may still believe it is owned by the council, despite the fact it is now in the private sector, because clearly they don't necessarily know what's, what's been sold and what hasn't. So, 
in a quick dash through, what we've essentially shown above is that despite fears generated by the media and by certain politicians expressed in surveys of the UK electorate, the economic and social impact of positive net Im immigration has often been positive and has usually been very small. But I think what Ben and I, and Ben's now going to move on to do the slightly more interesting bit, what we argue is that we need to move away from this myth-busting and ask what other ways might we frame this debate. So while we argue that um, myth-busting is vitally important, we don't think it's enough to do just myth-busting about the impact of migrants on the so-called native population. It's also crucial to find new ways of uh, conceptualising what's happening. Currently in public discourse there's a preconception that immigrants who settle and migrants who move around stand in contradistinction from British people and natives who stay put and are impacted upon. But the very idea of net immigration obviously contains within it emigration from the UK by British-born people, British nationals and others. It also contains immigration by people of British origin or whose parents or grandparents were immigrants from Britain. The fact that British people are migrants too is often missing from the public discussions. In fact, British-born people in Britain do not usually refer to other British people living outside Britain as migrants at all. Further, we need to consider the different nations and different migrant heritages that make up contemporary Britishness and to take race out of the debate over immigration and its impact. Finding commonality in spatial mobility is, we believe, one way to do this. And in order to develop these ideas about commonality, we need to expand popular understanding of migration by including discussions of internal migration within the UK, as well as temporary emigration from the UK. In our research, published in a book that's just been released in paperback, I've got a flyer in your packet, in your um, documents there, called Moving Histories of Class and Community, we talked to 73 mostly white working class people who were residents in a social housing estate in Norwich. The historical focus meant that older people were encouraged to think back across their lives, including childhoods as long ago as the 1930s. The interviews revealed to us how spatial mobility and immobility go hand in hand. Many more people who might be thought of as not migrants, not immigrants, had experience living abroad than we had previously thought. And though moving depended on certain resources or on government-sponsored work schemes or national service, and many did not have those resources, an even larger number of people were connected to people they loved who lived abroad. If we think here of Flo Smith, one of the research participants whom we met at a lunch club held at one of the estate's community centers, with her strong Norfolk accent, living only a few streets away from where she lived as a child, and in fact in the very estate her father helped build, she was the picture of a local resident. And yet, as Becky's interviews with her progressed, we found exactly how complicated this local identity was. Her mother was a Geordie who had gone to London in the Depression and found work as a cook. There she met Flo's future father, who was an American from Texas who had jumped ship and become a travelling salesman for a building firm. Flo told us how it was her mother's decision to stay in Norwich, as in Flo's words, she was pregnant with me when they finished up here and she told, uh, she told us she wouldn't go, she told her husband she wouldn't go no further. That's it, you know what I mean, I'm pregnant and I'm staying. After marrying someone in the RAF, 
Flo spent considerable time abroad herself in Cyprus and Singapore as part of her husband's posting, as well as in different locations across Britain. And yet all this movement carries with it no visible markers. As we have said, she has a strong local accent, is white, and rails against immigrants coming and taking our jobs and homes. The fact that there, was, that there were American GIs stationed around Norwich during the war meant that having an American father was not as uncommon as you might expect for a certain generation of children in the city. However, it was still relatively rare. Her mother's migration was far less rare. The turbulence of the British economy in the interwar period was followed by the Second World War, which saw internal migration at its highest point ever in British history. Added to this was the building of extensive new council estates from the 1930s to 1960s, something that David Feldman sees as being one of the biggest ever planned movements of the British population. So going back, council estate tenants were in fact migrants who had been moved or had moved out of inner cities in many cases. As Flo's life history suggests, contrary to depictions of the British working class as fixed in place, our interviews revealed much movement, not only within Norwich and the UK, but also abroad. Significant migrations for many of the older research participants included travel through national service, or more generally in the military, moves to Australia under the £10 POM scheme, to the US, for example, as GI brides in the 1940s, and more recently to a wider range of countries in Europe. And it's not only us who's coming out with this kind of stuff. Another historian, uh, Ben Jones, has a book coming out later this year called The Mid-20th Century English Working Class Experience, which is based on dozens of oral and written memoirs. And he found that only one participant um, had lived at the same address throughout their life. And in fact, 20% had spent significant proportions of their lives outside of the UK in Australia, New Zealand, Guyana, Germany, and Eastern Europe, moving for employment or with the military as part of national service. Still others, in Ben Jones's words, had meaningful connections with family members who were living in Australia, Canada, the USA, and parts of Europe. Just a, a very short anecdote. I'm doing research now in Peterborough, and I went to, as part of that, I'm going to all kinds of community organizations. I went to a church on Wednesday, and um, I, I saw a congregation which looked basically old and white. And um, I asked the priest about talking to people about, to do oral histories, uh, about Peterborough and people's lives in Peterborough. And she thought I meant only people who'd always lived there. And she really had to scratch her head to think, I think there's one person who's always lived in Peterborough in, in this congregation. So that sort of bore out some of this. Consequently, in our work, we set participants' comments on immigration and immigrants in the context of their own migrations and their connections to migrations by other family members. In our interviews, we found that connections with other places continued through memories, absences, practices learned elsewhere, through the media, the internet, through gifts, letters, phone calls and emails, and through ongoing visits and travel. These often transnational manifestations of life, stretching over time as well as space, were very often as emotionally charged as the transnational practices of new arrivals in Britain. Foregrounding forms of transnational life that involve long-term <coughs> settled people in the majority ethnic community uh, can be used to add to critiques of an indigenous Englishness. There is, after all, as uh, Robert Young has shown, no intrinsic essential Englishness, let alone Britishness. 
but rather an identification which can be learned and adopted and is thus in the process changed. Going back to our point about British emigration, migration out of the United Kingdom is as important as migration into it in the making of its constituent nations and the idea of Britishness. We would argue that more attention needs to be paid to the material, emotional and imaginative moves of contemporary people of all countries across both space and time, and the connections between these and the immobility, whether forced or chosen, of others. As part of this, a focus on the, way, the ways people portrayed as fixed in place, or by some as indigenous, the ways that they have been migrants themselves, can be revealing, not only about the subjects of the story, but also those who create the categories through which the stories and their subjects are represented. As Guardian journalist Gary Young puts it, the more power an identity carries, the less likely its carrier is to be aware of it as an identity at all. Because their identity is never interrogated, they're easily seduced by the idea that they do not have one. Devoid of any awareness that they too possess a perspective rooted in their own experience, for them, every food with which they are unfamiliar is ethnic food, and every month, their history month. So to conclude, what are we saying this morning? That there are two dominant strands of discourse on white working class people in the UK media. Either they're written off in derogatory terms, or they're treated as an endangered tribe under threat. When seen in this last way as beleaguered natives, they're often contrasted either with middle class people comfortable with ethnic diversity, or they're contrasted with immigrants and ethnic minorities. There is rarely an exploration of class interests held in common with migrants or ethnic minorities, nor of the kinds of mutual attraction across difference which Mika Neva has identified in her book Visceral Cosmopolitanism. There is a contrast between the often positive and usually very small impacts of migration and the way migrants continue to be portrayed as stealing jobs, housing and benefits. The research we've reported here actually indicates a great deal more movement by working class white people within, out of and into Britain than is usually reported in public policy debates. And even when people are relatively immobile, they're often connected to loved ones living abroad. Reframing the debate means ceasing to place white working class people and migrants in opposition, but looking instead both at people's often unrecognized migration histories and their own relations with family members living beyond daily travelling distance. Together, these perspectives encourage a critique of the very idea of indigeneity and a simultaneous focus on the transnational practices of people labelled indigenous.